Kia ora, welcome to NZSA Live, the podcast where we share audio recorded at a variety of New Zealand Society of Authors events. Today's podcast was recorded at the 2019 Janet Frame Memorial Address, given by NZSA President of Honour 2019-2020 David Hill. The prestigious position of NZSA President of Honour is bestowed on a senior writer and long-serving member in recognition of his or her contribution to writing and writers and the literary arts sector in New Zealand. You can see a list of the previous position holders and read past lectures on our website, authors.org.nz. Today's podcast begins with an introduction of David Hill by New Zealand children's author Melinda Shismanek. Award-winning writer, reviewer, journalist and playwright David Hill has been an NZSA member continuously since 1981 and while never a committee member he has always been active behind the scenes including taking on the roles of mentor and manuscript assessor for the society. David has mentored writers such as Kyle Mewburn and Marianne Scott who have gone on to win awards for their writing. Um, David has written for both adults and children over the years. The first book of David's that I read was See Ya Simon, published in 1992. For me, it marked him out as a compassionate writer who cared deeply about his readers. David received the Galen Gordon Award for a much-loved book for See Ya Simon, which would tend to suggest that his readers returned the love. His books since then have only confirmed these qualities in his writing. Over the years, he's received a range of accolades from Storyline's notable book awards, through numerous shortlistings, to the Esther Glenn Award for his book, Right Where It Hurts, in 2003, the Margaret Mahi Medal for Lifetime Achievement and a Distinguished Contribution to New Zealand's Literature for Young People in 2005, and Best Junior Fiction at the New Zealand Post Children's Book Awards and Librarian's Choice at the Lianzas for his novel, My Brother's War, in 2013. While the reader in me feels happy when David has a new book out, the writer, writer in me slumps a little knowing I don't have a chance against his books in the awards. <laughs> He's written many perceptive and witty book reviews for the New Zealand Herald. If you haven't read his review of Rebecca Priestley's book, 15 Million Years in Antarctica in last Saturday's Canvas magazine, you should and I've got it with me, in case you want to. And he is the author of a wonderful series of biographical picture books. Uh, the latest one is Dinosaur Hunter about um, Jean Whiffen? Jo Joan Whiffen. Um, they're illustrated by Phoebe Morris, um, and they're sure to keep him in the book awards in the future. So it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce the New Zealand Society of Authors 2019-2020 President of Honour and the speaker for today's Janet Frame Memorial Lecture, David Hill. Thank you. Kia ora everyone. Uh, thank you for the lovely words, Melinda. There's nothing more unattractive than an elderly man simpering, I think, <laughs> and uh, your words certainly have that effect. Thank you very much for coming tonight, folks. Uh, thank you for the chance to come up to Auckland, which is always interesting for a Taranakiite. We uh, flew up this time. We have driven up in the past. 
And I must say, whenever I drive in Auckland, I'm struck by the, the willing, generous eagerness of Auckland drivers to <laughs> acknowledge the fact that I am changing lanes and to encourage me to do so. It is, seems to be a feature each time I drive here. There's no doubt, I think, that great occasions bring great reactions. And when Siobhan Harvey, the president, the previous president, rang me very graciously some months back to say that the Society of Authors would like me to be their next president of honor and to deliver this Janet Frey Memorial Lecture, my first, first thought was, shit, am I that old? <laughs> but then I began thinking of Mia striplings such as Chris Els and the wonderful Bernard Brown and mere chits of girls like Joan, Rosia Jones and Daphne de Jong, and I felt a bit reassured. I also felt a great deal honored, and I feel that today. I remember reading a letter by Wilfred Owen, and I'm going to mention a lot of authors as I talk. I love reading what other authors say about their craft, so please forgive the name dropping. But I remember a letter of Wilfred Owen in which he talks about the most flattering form of approbation, being the approbation of one's peers, one's fellow tradespeople. And that's what delights me in particular about being offered this position. I know that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about the five stages of grief. I'd like to suggest there are five stages of acceptance. First of all, there's incredulity when the offer is made. Then comes apprehension. There's been a mix-up. The Society of Authors actually met, meant to make the award to someone alphabetically next to me on the list or chronologically next to me on the list. And any day now, I'm going to get an embarrassed phone call from Jenny or Claire at the Society of Authors. The third stage of acceptance, I think, is anxiety. The measles outbreak means that the whole of Auckland's going to be put into quarantine on the day we're due to fly up. Or Hurricane Duane is going to strike on that day and closes all airports. I guess the fourth stage of acceptance is repositioning. You start to realize you have been around for long enough for some others in the field to know you. The, if you do a school visit, the first question you get is not necessarily going to be, are you the David Hill who plays rugby for the Waikato Chiefs? And I have been asked that, and we have actually exchanged letters. He sounds a very pleasant young guy, but he needs to do quite a bit of work on his apostrophes. <laughs> and I guess the final stage, the fifth stage of acceptance, is pleasure and gratification. I'm thrilled out of my tiny provincial mind to be offered this post, and I thank all of you in the Society of Authors for the privilege of delivering this lecture. The state of the nation for writers. That's meant to be the brief of the Janet Frame Memorial Lecture. What I want to talk about in particular is the state of being a jobbing author in this country. But I want to begin by talking about my state, my place in the New Zealand Society of Authors. What part do I play in our society? Well, as Melinda said, I've been a member for a long time. I pay my subs, which I always claim on tax. My accountant, by the way, was initially puzzled by the letters NZSA. He asked rather tentatively if it was perhaps a socialist association, because political subs weren't necessarily deductible. 
I always add a very modest donation to my sub, for which I receive such courteous thanks from Claire that I feel abashed I don't give more. As Melinda said, I've mentored and I've assessed and I've mentioned the Society of Authors approvingly in articles I've written for the author and for other outlets. I've been to meetings and I make sure I buy in the bookshops which offer discounts to our members. The money I save doesn't enter into it, of course. But compared to so many, many, to so many members, including a number of you here this evening, I've done a little. I do have some excuses. I'm geographically remote. Elizabeth Smither and I and very few others are the entire Taranaki membership. I'm temperamentally remote. I know from sad experience that I'm not a good office holder or committee member, so I'm very grateful to those of you who do accept such posts. I'll keep on making my extra donation as a meagre sort of recompense. I'm grateful also to the Society of Authors for being an organisation which, among other things, is so inclusive, which welcomes people like me who aren't engaged in the political sense, although I, we, support its overall aims. People like me who are rather niggardly about our time and our commitment. I think that one of the many strengths of this organisation one of the aspects which puts it into such a good state is that inclusiveness. The way it allows for so many writers from so many genres and so many different levels, including levels of involvement. One of the pleasures I always get from reading the author magazine when it comes out is its list of new members in each issue, up to 30 or 40 of them in each issue, and the lists of those who've rejoined, up to a dozen or 15 of those. We're in good shape, I think. We're in a good state in our writing nation. And my repeated thanks to those of you who make that possible. I'm lucky, I think, to belong to the Society of Authors. I don't offer that as a platitude. I want to return later to the idea of writers being lucky. I also admire our organization. I admire it in particular for its ability to get authors to agree on issues. Uh, I spent a bit of time in the army a long while back. You'll probably recall how you slept so soundly in your beds during the 1960s when I was doing my national service. <laughs> but um, it was a given in the military that one of the hardest things to achieve was to get a group of officers to move in the same direction at the same time. Like herding cats was the usual comparison, along with a number of rather coarser variations. And I remember some years back when this society was dealing with a rather contentious issue, I asked one of the executives if, if the cat's comparison applied also to writers. She, or possibly he, smiled a diplomatic smile and replied, no, cats shift position gracefully. <laughs> but I do commend the Society of Authors for the way they managed to bring such unity such collegiality to a diverse bunch of independently-minded people whose work means they're, we're, you're, constantly challenging and subverting, always examining and reshaping ideas and words of all sorts. And here I'll put forward my one policy remit. There are a number of writers, awards, fellowships, grants, remunerations of other sorts available in New Zealand to writers. 
Many of these awards and grants, in fact, I'd suggest most of them, have been initiated or supported by the Society of Authors. I wrote a few years back how I'd like our society to contact every award and grant recipient, congratulating them, and if appropriate, enclosing a membership form. I'm crusty enough to sort of bridle and brood a bit when I see non-members benefiting from the work and the subscriptions of members. I'd like to talk for a little bit about how I see authors' prospects and position at this time, the state of our status, if I can use such an ugly phrase. First, I want to perhaps offend some folk and say that I feel we're currently in a good political climate. I believe that writers usually have better prospects under a Labour and Greens government. And of course, I'm sure Winston also lives a life devoted to the finer things. But I feel we have the best prospects when we have a woman Prime Minister who's also Minister of the Arts. Think Helen Clark, think Jacinda Ardern. I tend to assume that the majority of us writers, we writers, are lefties of varying degrees. You may contradict me afterwards. But I believe we're more interested in, we believe in individuals rather than corporations. We believe in bottom-up approaches rather than trickle-down ones. For those reasons, as well as others, I think we're more in harmony with leftish governments. Am I making a covert and inappropriate electoral plea? Quite likely. I will say how active and how supportive our present Prime Minister has been in my field of children's, children's and young adult writing. To have her present at a Margaret Mahi Storylines Day, to get recorded and well-informed messages of goodwill at Children's Book Award evenings, it's splendid. She was also coming to Taranaki's WOMAD Festival back in March, and she was apparently going to come and hear Elizabeth Smither read, until that, of course, became the day of Christchurch's horrors. But how brilliant it is, I think, to have a Prime Minister who's aware or who's kept aware of New Zealand writing. Maybe our society, the Society of Authors, could consider offering her honorary membership. Anyway, I'm sure the society will keep gently reminding the government that our members make us possibly the most eloquent and persuasive trade union in the country, and they'd be wise to keep us on side. I note also that this government seems willing to take on big, rapacious businesses such as Amazon and make them pay tax to this country as a slight recompense for the business they take away from bookshops and the income they take away from writers in this country. If those government measures, which I do hope are in process by the time I'm saying this, raise the cost of online books and thus give our bookshops some new hope, then maybe there is a God after all and she supports local writing. <laughs> I used to feel concern at the potential loss of local outlets and of local identity in our books as big overseas publishers swallow New Zealand ones. I still feel apprehension, but less so. Perhaps I'm foolishly rosy in outlook, but I do think the appearance of courageous new New Zealand publishers, plus the growth in self-publishing and online publishing, and in their quality, plus the commitment of a number of publishers and editors working for those major, uh, those bigger companies, certainly lessen my concern. 
However, however, I'm aware what a struggle it can still be to find a publisher, how much time we as authors have to spend trying to get our words out into the world. I am concerned over the apparent decline in the number of quality bookshops. I say apparent because I've seen figures suggesting a steadiness, even a slight resurgence in the field. But in New Plymouth, we've lost two out of our five bookshops in recent years. That's 40%. One chain store, quite a good one, closed. One splendid independent bookshop went under, largely because of customers coming in, finding a book, noting its details, photogra photographing it with their cell phones, then going away and buying the book more cheaply on Amazon. And actually, that's my second uh, remit to the Society of Authors, along with sending a membership form to award winners. I'd like them to support any move by bookshops to charge such photo takers a levy. In the meantime, of course, keep buying New Zealand books from New Zealand bookstores where possible. Do I worry about a decline in reading? That's another 60-minute lecture. And I must say it was chastening a couple of days ago when I after I'd finished writing this speech, to see that 440,000 New Zealanders didn't read a book last year. The image I had was of a number of those people saying, and it never did me any harm, which quite frankly is a phrase that I think should be made a capital offence. Bring back the birch, I say. Um, but it does, I am concerned that in a noise-crammed, celebrity-vaunting world of increasingly instant gratification, and I know how septuagenarian those phrases sound, I do worry that the quiet, more modest, more private and longer-time processes of reading and writing may be, if not overwhelmed, then perhaps relegated in their status and their importance. Justin Patton, the art critic, has an excellent essay in which he talks about the noisy art scene of performance works, video, installations, kinetic art. Tucked away inside that noisy market of work, Patton envisages a small, quiet, less visited side room that is painting. And I sometimes feel that writing and reading inhabit such a room, which to us is a sanctuary and delight but to other people? I don't worry that reading or writing will disappear. I do feel concerned that they may dwindle. Reading and writing both require focus, exclusion, a degree of introversion, a long-term commitment. I can reluctantly understand if those qualities seem less attractive in an increasingly distracted world where screens of all sorts seem to provide easier, quicker, more gaudy rewards. Okay, I'm closer to 80 than 70. I've made the point, I'll stop there. But hell, weren't most of us lucky to be born before screens became so pervasive? As I say, I'll come back to that lucky aspect later on. One bizarre point I want to make, I'd like to see writers and writing demythologized more. For us to be seen as members of society, just doing another rather minority job but concerned like everyone else about parking problems and climate change and the Rugby World Cup. I still come across the perception that authors inhabit some sort of psychological and social penthouse, or maybe a sleep out. Anyhow, they're often seen as living lives somehow detached from the rest of society. 
Decades back when Morris G won one of his many awards, he was asked what he planned to do with the money. Bloody cheek, actually. But he replied, oh, I'll pay off part of the mortgage. And I remember the interviewer's incredulity that writers actually had mortgages. <laughs> I believe that image of us as somehow separate and remote is diminishing. I'd love it to diminish further. In the last few months, my Sunday walking group, and walking, I have to tell you, is a hyperbolic term, we were trundling through central New Plymouth, and on the hillside above St. Mary's Pro Cathedral, we passed a little grave whose stone reads Charles Armitage Brown, the friend of Keats. Brown was a 19th century businessman who lost a lot of money in bristles. And you'll understand, I just had to tell you that particular detail. Bristle was wonderful. He also knew Keats as a medical student and helped when the poet was dying. Anyway, I of course informed my walking group of all this, and one of them said, Keats was a medical student. I thought he was a poet. And the implication still seems to be that if you're a writer, you can't possibly be anything else. So I'd love to see any shift, any awareness that helps establish us more as part of the mainstream and still keeps the tax breaks for us. So that's what I want to say about the state of writers within our state. Now I'd like to say something about the state of one aspect of our job. I want to talk about the craft of writing. I know that other presidents of honour have written and spoken impressively on the, the art of writing, but I'm no, I'm no good at that. I'd love to be able to produce some aphorism which captures the aesthetic quintessence of literature or the philosophy of fiction, the place of prose and the cosmic order. But I'm afraid I realised a long time back that my making pronouncements on aesthetic quintessence is about as convincing as the President of the United States making pronouncements on integrity. <laughs> it doesn't worry me actually because it's the craft of writing that delights and fascinates me. The trade skills, the quotidian tricks of being an author. There's a poem somewhere, I searched for it but I couldn't find the author, sorry. It's written, I think, by one of those end of the 19th century people with three names, Peregrine, Mountebank, Bewley or something like that. And it describes a piece of antique furniture being praised by a group of connoisseurs sophisticated people who are all purring about exquisite specimen of the Rococo, transcendent pinnacle of artistic achievement and such like. And then one voice says, I like those hidden dovetails best. Now that's actually so cutesy, so Reader's Digest, that you all have permission to flee your lips appropriately. Yet I guess my reactions also include dovetails. Oh yeah, I like using them too sometimes. In other words, it's the crafted groundwork as much or even more than the artistic result that appeals to me as a writer. Um, I guess I better pause here in the interests of truth and concede that the only time I've ever put up a shelf in our house, I did not use dovetails. I got screws and belted them in with a hammer. <laughs> but it's the perspiration side of being an author that satisfies me at least as much as the inspiration side. And those glib terms are my second nod to the Reader's Digest. 
On the subject of inspiration, by the way, I want to deviate again from any path the speech may have accidentally strayed into by mentioning a magazine my wife Beth cruelly showed me a while back. It was one of those lifestyle publications with titles like Home Opulent or such. You know the sort where people in white trousers are shown taking breakfast by their beachfront homes. And you know, photos of those beachfront homes make you realize that sea level rise isn't going to be all bad. <laughs> Anyhow, the folk in these magazines always talk a lot about inspiration. They're always being inspired to turn their compost bin into a spa pool or their septic tank into a wine cellar and such like. Inspiration comes easily to these people, except that in the magazine Beth showed me, they don't have flashes of inspiration any longer. They have flashes of inspo. Inspo. I'd like to nominate that word right now as the glibest, oiliest, most meretricious neologism of the decade. <laughs> I feel a lot better after that. <laughs> so anyway, when I heard Marilyn Duckworth say once, and I, I hope I've got her words mostly correct, oh, you don't want to hear how I write my first drafts on the left-hand side of the page and leave the right-hand side clear for revision. When I heard that, I thought, yes, I do, Marilyn. And do you alternate between blue and black pens on the different days you write? so that when you revise, you can see exactly where you began struggling into your work for that day? When I found that Elizabeth Smithers' way of writing poems is to make herself comfortable once or twice a week on her bed, propped up with pillows and a good black pen, to read poems by other poets she admires for a while, and then to write about five of her own in one dash, I was utterly wrapped. And when Elizabeth self-effacingly said that usually only two or three of those get published, um, I was rancorous as well as wrapped. <laughs> Graham Lay from Auckland. Um, when I was toying with the idea of writing my first novel, and Graham had already had two or three novels in print by then, I said to him how fearful I was of trying to write a first draft. And Graham said, oh, first draft, you just chuck everything down into them. And I'd like Graham to know that 30 years on, that phrase resonates with me still and comforts me as I try and work on them. And I was equally fascinated when I heard how Cormac McCarthy typed his first six novels, I think, on an old Remington manual typewriter using a ribbon. A ribbon. Amazing. And then he auctioned off the typewriter to help raise money for a writing school. That's great, I think. Excellent. And back in the day when most of us also used typewriters and the work of retyping a much rejected work was one of the labours of the trade. I'm referring to those manuscripts some of you may remember, which were sent back by editors or publishers so often that inside the return envelope they developed folds which made certain lines almost illegible. Um, I remember a rather eminent New Zealand author confiding to several of us that he found that using a steam iron with a tea towel on front of the pages actually gave them um, a remarkably fresh-looking appearance. <laughs> and I felt at that moment as if I'd been initiated into one of the great mysteries of literature. 
Uh, I mean, admittedly, there are a few trade tricks I'm not entirely sure about. Emil Zola apparently wrote that he looked forward to struggling with a really difficult sentence because he found it gave him an erection. And I, I thought I'd pause here and ask for a show of hands. <laughs> anyway, are these sorts of details merely trivia, just distracting little facts that don't say anything about the nature of writing? Well, maybe. But when I read about Wilkie Collins, the 19th century novelist, who was so tormented by what his time called rheumatic arthritis, that he had to dictate his last novels to a series of scribes, a series because none of them lasted more than a few months due to Collins groaning aloud with pain all the time that he was dictating. When I heard that, read that, I felt not just moved, but elevated somehow. And when I read also that sometimes when Collins was managing to do the writing himself, he would become so engrossed in his work that he forgot the pain for hours at a stretch, I had that transformative feeling of fellowship, of utter empathy, that I believe is one of the great pleasures reading and writing can give all of us. I also believe that my knowledge, my appreciation of others' writing is enriched by knowing something about the author and the author's writing techniques. I remember a review saying that the reader of this particular novel has to decide whether the pure, gentle, infinitely good and kind protagonist dies because she's too good for the world or because the author didn't know what else to do with her and I was instantly attracted to the ramifications of the second option. For me, it's the craft of writing is not only satisfying, but sometimes it does bring what I'll call epiphanies. You see the careful building of the techniques and tricks, which, if you're lucky, may sometimes bring a result far greater than the sum of those parts. When T.S. Eliot dedicated The Wasteland to Ezra Pound, and called Pound Il Milior Fabro, the better craftsman. I reckon he understood the significance of that noun. Perhaps it's, I'm just different from many other writers and their priorities. Well, of course I am, just as every one of you here tonight is different as a writer. Every one of us has a different perspective on the state of our writing craft. For one thing, um, I'm uninformed about aspects and areas of which younger, newer writers need to be informed. The importance and potential of online publishing and outlets, the whole spectrum of independent publishing, as I mentioned earlier. I'm different also in as much as I've never attended a writing school, and I realize this statement also sounds as though it should be followed by, and it never did me any harm. Well. Frankly, I think the lack of an experience, such an experience, probably did do my writing and my so-called writing career harm. I've never had the chance to submit my work to the rigorous peer assessment that I know is a feature of such schools. I didn't have the benefit of having established authors come and talk of their trade or of the full and wonderful immersion in writing that such courses can provide or the advice on marketing, self-presentation, applications procedures and skills that those schools can also offer. I perhaps did have the compensatory benefits of developing my own voice and technique in other ways, 
And I wonder if not experiencing such a school perhaps kept me in touch with the cool, often uninterested outside world a bit sooner and a bit more often. I'm not sure. I do have some reservations about writing schools, and I accept that they're reservations largely based on ignorance. Do they raise hopes too high? Do they help get some authors into print before they're ready? I know that's a peculiar thing to say, but I do wonder about the number of edgy, challenging, <coughs> precociously gifted first books that appear from new writers who in a number of cases never seem to be heard of again. Okay, perhaps they wouldn't have got the first book out if they hadn't gone to their writing school. Anyway, such schools are an integral part of the state of our writing nation now, and I acknowledge the benefits they bring to many writers. I'm different from other authors also because I went full-time writing in the years, the early 80s, 1980s to be scarily specific, when outlets were significantly more numerous. All sorts of publications in those days considered freelance submissions of fiction, non-fiction, poetry, comment. Some of you will remember when The Listener was publishing about 40 short stories a year and maybe a hundred poems or so when Metro and North and South and innumerable specialty magazines were also taking work. In the very early 1980s, I actually sold a short story about a road worker to the New Zealand Concrete Manufacturers magazine. <laughs> and I feel confident I'm the only writer in this august assembly to have that on my CV. I pause for contradiction? None. <laughs> And for children's writers then, of course, there was also the wonderfully supportive and professional and wide-ranging school journal. And who would ever have believed that that could dwindle and almost vanish the way it has? And Radio New Zealand then was full of programs for kids and paid its contributors well. In fact, almost paid them a professional rate. Now. And it was also a time when local publishers of children's and YA books in particular were beginning a boom period. I was lucky enough to have 15 years with the wonderful Anne Mallinson of Mallinson Rendell. She supported me, advised me, gave me that sense of continuity that Ian Weddy once wrote as so sustaining to a writer. How many publishers now have the time and confidence to do that? Well, I'm actually still fortunate because I have one now who somehow still finds the time and the energy and the support to pay close attention to me, to encourage and guide me. But I do know what a struggle that often is for her. And Catherine, if you're embarrassed, good. So yes, I was definitely lucky. And I've used that word lucky several times now because I believe that as authors we are lucky I accept it's an adjective you have to be careful of. I mean, think of Australia calling itself the lucky country before refugees, Pauline Hanson, water shortage and the Bledisloe Cup came along. Um, anyone who labels themselves lucky needs a lecture on the classic Greek concept of hubris, those whom the gods would destroy they first make privileged. Or, in a variation I read once and rather like, those whom the gods would destroy, they first make photogenic. <laughs> when I read that, I thought, well, I'm pretty safe, actually. <laughs> we are lucky because when we write, we're free. 
Yes, we are constrained by form, by facts, sometimes by necessities imposed through characters, plot, audience perhaps. But within those constraints, we have so much liberty to make choices, to select directions, decide on what we'll do or won't do with words and narrative and structure. I mean, how many other occupations have that sort of privilege? The American critic James Wood puts it very nicely. He talks about the sublime discovery of writing as in an utterly free space where anything might be thought and wrought. We're lucky too because we have the chance to be serious observers, to pause on that clamorous, distracted world I mentioned before and to go deep. Reading does that, writing can do it. There are occasions when we write when we're not at the mercy of time and events, when we can build new comprehensions, perspectives, even new resources. We're lucky also because our profession is often also our pastime and our passion. Yes, I know there's a suspicious amount of alliteration there, and I know that pastime is inadequate while passion sounds pretentious. But I'm sure all of us here tonight have experienced special moments during the act of writing. And I do mean act as an action, by the way. The moments when the pen is traveling across the paper or while paragraphs are forming on screen, for those of you who are less technically challenged. The moments when you realize goodness, or words to that effect, there's something there, something has happened. And there are the other moments too when those abstract black symbols building in front of you are making you exclaim aloud with delight or excitement or despair. When my wife appears where I'm writing and says, are you all right? And I realize she's concerned about the supposedly grown up man blubbering over a sheet of paper. <laughs> the moments, as I say, when profession equates with passion. They're another reason, I think, why we're lucky. Are we lucky because we may be famous? <laughs> Not at pub quiz, I can assure you, where you're expected to know all about Geoffrey Archer, and if a question comes up about Fifty Shades of Grey, the pub quiz team turns to you and say, David, you'll know about this. <laughs> or the times when unmistaken for David Hill, the rugby player. Or other times, and I must tell you, of the occasion some years ago when a year five and six class, those you know, delicious 10, 11, some 12 year olds, had been reading a number of stories and books by David Hill, and they invited David Hill to come and speak to their class, and they asked David Hill questions about his books, and David Hill read them a couple of things, and they gave a vote of thanks and a box of chocolates to David Hill. And while I was on my way back to the staff room with the teacher, two little girls from the class rushed up with autograph books and said, Mr. Hill, Mr. Hill, will you please sign my autograph book? And I said, certainly, my child. And <laughs> I signed. In my signature, the word David is, I think, particularly clear and elegant. And these two children who had spent an hour talking to David Hill, the writer, looked at my signature, looked at me and said, ah, oh, aren't you Michael Hill, the jeweler? I think, <laughs> collapse of skinny party, I think, is the appropriate phrase. 
We're lucky because of the friends we make from writing. Not only other authors, though, like you, I'm sure, I've got writing friends whom I grapple to my soul with hoops of steel, but also sometimes the friends, the kindred spirits anyway, the people who tell you how they liked your book. Admittedly, a couple of them were talking about a book by someone else, but I didn't have the heart to correct them. <laughs> and there's also the friendships, or at any rate, the deeper understandings and the sympathies that we establish with ourselves through writing. I know that a few fortunate times I've realized more about myself and my actions. I've become more at ease with myself, more forgiving of myself, as I've tried to write something that started from one of the many less commendable moments in my life. And then there are the other friends, we, the ones we shape on the pages, whether they're the subjects of the biography you're writing, the figures in your essay, the characters in your fiction. I do feel a melancholy when I say goodbye to my characters at the end of a book. I do sometimes reread bits of my stories for the pleasure of re-meeting those people and for wishing I'd made a better job of creating them too. So yes, we have the fortune of all those friendships. And I believe we're lucky also because as authors, we can do a little good for the world, only on balance and only after numerous qualifications. And once again, I don't include Geoffrey Archer. But we're all aware of the healing, the potential therapeutic power of stories and words both for the reader and the writer, and we're privileged to work in that field. As a writer, you don't have to justify what you do. American authorities apparently calculate the number of prison inmates they'll need to cater for in the future by calculating the number of illiterate 10-year-olds there are in that society. So as well as the other good we do, we help keep people out of prison, and that'll be the evening's most extreme claim. But yes, if I'm talking about the state of our writing nation, I'm glad to include the happy states of mind that writing can sometimes put us in. One of Virginia Woolf's essays has a nice little whimsy in which the members of a book group or such approach the pearly gates and St. Peter glances at them and says, oh, your readers, come straight in. I like to imagine an author approaching the said gates and the said St. Peter saying, really liked your poem in The Last Landfall. It spoke to me. <laughs> Though it's also quite possible that St. Peter may say, oh yes, you wrote that negative review of my book of celestial aphorisms, didn't you? <laughs> and we're lucky for one last reason. I've mentioned this tediously often in other things I've written, but about 35 years ago, I was asked to assemble a booklet on Morris G whom I respect and admire as a person and an author almost idolatrously. I exchanged numerous letters with Morris. This was pre-email days as I worked on the booklet and he replied with unfailing patience and courtesy and terrible handwriting, terrible handwriting. One of the trite questions I asked him was about the satisfactions he found in writing. And Morris replied, the greatest happiness I know as a writer is writing well. There are days when everything comes together. You emerge after a couple of hours knowing that something exists now that didn't exist before. You made it, and it's good. That's the greatest pleasure I know. Well, if you're Morris, it's good. But yes, it's a special feeling, and I believe that all of us here this evening are lucky people to have known that feeling 
and continue knowing it to varying degrees. So my thanks to the Society of Authors for helping me experience it, and again for this honour you've so generously awarded me. Thanks very much. This podcast was produced by me, Elizabeth Kirkby-McLeod, and recorded at the Alan Melville Centre in Auckland in September 2019. The music was provided free by Joseph McDade. Subscribe and like the NZSA Live podcast to hear audio from other New Zealand Society of Authors events. Kakite anō.